0: Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. This week, I'm happy to be welcoming back Molly Holschlag. She's uh, part of a core group that was influential in the development of the World Wide Web as we know it now, authored myriad books on the subject, and most recently joined the team at Vivaldi. How's it going, Molly?
1: Hey, Brett. Great to be here, and great to be back on your show. I'm really honored. Thanks.
0: So, we're going to get to part of the reason that the... uh, there was such a long break between the last two episodes. But when we left off your story last time, we were talking about uh, kind of the, the, the tail end of your authoring career and the origins of the web and moving into more of how the web became what it is right now. And right. at that point, yeah. I think you began work with opera.
1: Yeah. So let's see. Let's go back. So we were talking, I think we ended up right at the end of uh, my book career, which, uh, you know, I, I've stepped away from that for now, at least. And um, we finished up, let's see, the the last two that I did were, was CSS, uh, Trans- uh, Transcend, uh, what is I can't even remember my own books.
0: <laughs> CSS Soundgarden <laughs> so and Transcending yes,
1: thank CSS. You. Thank you. Yes. Working on those two, uh, both uh with Dave Shea and uh, later Andy Clark on the second title there and uh, shaping some really good things in the CSS world. And then uh, I went off and uh, went to Opera. Yes, that's exactly where I went after finishing up with those books and feeling like, okay, (laughs) I've done 35 books. That's enough for now. (laughs) Let's go do something else.
0: So Opera was uh, a player in the kind of browser market, but... The the real claim to fame was embeddability in non-desktop platforms. What what was great about Opera for you?
1: Wow, that's a big question because Opera... I'm working for any browser company. uh, uh, Let's just backtrack a little bit. I don't know if we talked about... We talked, I believe, about the Bill Gates days and the fight for web standards already. And what was fascinating about that um, was that during that time... I did some consultation um, with Microsoft, with the IE team, and really got a chance to work with their developers and talk a lot about web standards and how implementation was so important. It was such a very different time. you know. We don't even really have to think about or advocate as hard for that in terms of the browser space. The browsers now understand that the core standards have to be part of their have to be part of the browsing experience that there's no question that 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 implementation must go into a browser engine so I think that we've we've come a great a great distance and that was right at the time where I was beginning to see the internal side of browsers getting made so it made sense to go to opera when the offer actually was on the table, and I had two offers i was I was being kind of either Microsoft or opera, and I felt I wanted to go to Opera because it did have that uh, embeddability and the non-desktop uh, focus in many of its products, and I really wanted to expand my own knowledge in that. And so that's what kind of made me lean toward Opera, and uh, and it was an incredible experience in part because of that and because of what it I got to see what it was really like to build a web browser from the inside.
0: So let's let's talk about one point and the the idea of the browser, like when I think about the development of the World Wide Web, I think about, you know, information and availability and all of this. But it's really the browser defines what the capabilities of the Web are. And so thus, I mean, browsers are the backbone of the World Wide Web.
1: I, I would say they're the interpreter. They're the, they interpret the World but Wide Web But if they're for not us.
0: capable, their capabilities define our capabilities.
1: Yes. Well, and vice versa. It's an it's a absolutely uh, one-to-one corollary, in my opinion. Without, yeah, yeah, absolutely, Brett.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So. so yeah, so, yeah. And Opera never got a huge market share.
1: Let me be very clear about that. Our opera never got a huge market share in the United States of America. Outside of the U.S., Opera was very successful, remains very successful, actually. And uh, in, they're in the process of what looks like to be a very big sale for, I think, one mm-hmm. point some odd billion dollars to a Chinese consortium. So, uh, yeah. I, mean, I thought Opera like,
0: disappeared.
1: It No, it did not. And <laughs> I can I tell you why and what they did. They were actually, from a business perspective, they've done they've done very smart things they're not idiots you know um but they went astray from the core goals that were originally there from the founder and that's part of the story as well so i think just to kind of frame this is that um opera is very has, was very very strong early on in um its implementation of of web standards uh it's you know Halkin lee who is, of course, the co-father with Bert Boss of CSS, is, uh, is their CTO and has been acting CTO for a very long time at Opera Software. So there is a close relationship already with W3C and with the specifications and the building of specifications. And if you look at it historically, the people that built HTML5, which is now our application language for the web- World Wide Web, all came out of Opera, okay? And went on to do other things and work for other companies, naturally. But Anna van Kesteren and, of course, Ian Hicksey, Hickson, whom we call Hicksey, uh, the, the Basically, the people that really started the application revolution at, at the W3C all came out of that environment. So it was a very, very incredible think tank, if you will. And also where, where opera is very fascinating and, and where it kind of, in my opinion, lost its focus as a browser is in feature sets. We were famous for the tabs and we are, you know, if you go back in the history and you look at panels and various implementations of uh, the features within a browser's interface that we find familiar, it was originally opera that can claim fame for the for the addition of many of those types of things. <laughs> Surely not all, and surely not the best in every case. <laughs> but opera was very good at you know throwing lots and lots and lots of different ideas out there, which I think made it uh, very very strong in terms of uh, uh, what it what it was and what it meant to the people that were there developing it and learning about the web and how to make a browser at the same time.
0: I think in the uh, in the market that that playing that role is never well recognized companies such as apple that take those ideas and then refine them and make them you know a standard for right. like users they get all the credit but you know like the idea of an mp3 player was out way before the ipod existed of course so yeah i kind of see it's a it's a thankless job being the innovator <laughs> in the in the yeah. uh field
1: Well, opera is definitely a story like that, except for the fact that they got um, reoriented business wise and they found a business model that is obviously bringing them um, some, you know, some money. And what that means is, you know, anybody's guess, because then if that happens, then obviously new people will be at the helm. um, And how that works out is, of course, to be seen. So I think. The point of opera is, yeah, it is an unsung hero in many, many ways. And one of the things that I love the most about being involved for those two years was that the relationships that I, I have since then, um, these are the relationships that never go away. Uh, it, opera alumni, you know, they have an alumni group that's quite active on like Facebook, LinkedIn, some different uh, opera groups out there for folks that have gone on to do other things. Um, And so many of us remain in touch and we keep it, you know, and it's vastly international. So you've got the Norwegians and you've got the Eastern Europeans and you've got the Russians and you've got the Chinese and you've got everybody involved. And it's really kind of cool, you know, and it's just a very interesting multicultural environment as well as a rich think tank. So that is one of the things I took away that is it's kind of one of those softer skills, if you will but really an appreciation for the vast network of people around the world who build software.
0: Yeah, that's, it's, um, it's, I kind of, in my head, I'm imagining uh, the Wild West frontier that I often (laughs) think of the World Wide Web as. And, (laughs) and this group, like these people who really were on the cutting edge, both of the backing technologies and the, uh, the end users, you know, capabilities I think that's. Um, I, I I had never thought of Opera in that way. I can recall very clearly the point at which, as a web developer, we didn't. We decided we didn't need to test on Opera anymore. Of it course, and it that, had yeah. like a, I think I, uh, thirteen to fourteen percent market share, and
1: and that that would be again United States, and that if that is your primary, um, you know, we. We did that. We did a lot of looking at our logs back in those days, and we still do. You know, which browsers are we supporting, and when does it make sense to drop support? Okay, that that is a kind of a matrix that all companies now have to create and/or work with to ensure that they have the widest uh, intera available for their for their user base. And so, it makes sense that that would have happened. Uh, and it's unfortunate because it made it harder at opera for us to do our jobs and the increasing, it became increasingly high stress. And when, uh, and so I think I was there right at the shift when. Uh, a lot of the innovation, which I believe comes directly through the leadership of Jan von Techner, who was the co-founder of Opera Software, and now, of course, is the co-founder of Vivaldi Technologies. So I think that uh it was really his vision that drove that innovation, in my opinion. And of course, many other people came in, and and you know, anybody who's at the in a leadership level like that knows that the best people make make you great you know and i think he operates on that on that supposition anyway that he would he only likes to surround himself with great people and he did and he ended up creating what was really a great browser and what was really a useful tool ultimately for the world because when you think about it the opera browser is the first browser and only browser that could really and even to this day the opera mini browser the way that it works um is it's able to go on feature phones for heaven's sake. I mean, we're not, we're talking about reaching, we're reaching parts of the world where there is very little technology infrastructure. And that's truly the world wide web, right? The world wide web. So I loved that. I loved that aspect that, you know, it was like nobody left behind and that's, that's part of their great strength. So I think that, There was a loss of leadership there, and that kind of made the drive to make opera on desktop even better, less important for those years. It's become important again, though. I wouldn't count opera down and out, but I would definitely not. (laughs) They're sneaky. (laughs) I mean, with all respect, I know a lot of the people there, and they're a smart, smart bunch of people, so... You know uh, whether they're in our competitor world or not. From uh, my perspective now, <laughs> as uh, a, a somebody who works for the the new company that Jan co started, uh, it, it definitely looks to me like you know they're still kicking kicking some dust up, and we should expect interesting things.
0: Awesome! I it's I don't know. This is all kind of mind boggling. <laughs> to, th- <I> know. <laughs> to think to think that something that I considered so unimportant was important, and as an American web designer in the u s for almost two decades, I will admit that I basically always had the mindset, and I think it's common in the community that i I build web pages for Americans, and everyone else just figures it out and I yeah. remember days you know spent in get text and p o files trying to huh. create international versions. And what a pain it was.
1: It's very, very hard. Uh, internationalization is a... Uh, the, the, uh, the, the concepts and the application of applied internationalization in software is very complicated. You have to deal with so many different languages and writing script styles. It, uh, you know, actually CSS, uh, being in the CSS working group sort of opened my eyes to that. Uh, I had never really known the, you know, how engineers actually have to struggle to make these things display on a computer. It's absolutely fascinating, though, from a from a heavy-duty tech standpoint, but very difficult as a web developer to do well. And, in fact, it's not talked about very much, despite the fact that the, uh, in my opinion, the internationalization section on the W3C, which is uh, run by a, a wonderful guy named Richard Ishida, uh it, has some of the most human-friendly information there. So check that out. If people are interested in the actual tech and specs behind making websites more uh, internationalized and globalized and localized as well, uh, and there's a lot of topics under each of those head- headings. So it is a very difficult thing to do. And I think for an American, especially because we're such a large company, it only, me- uh, excuse me, country, country, company. <laughs> That's pretty funny.
0: Almost a Freudian. So.
1: <laughs> I would not say almost. <laughs> I might go all the way and say I probably meant it.
0: <laughs> so- <laughs>
1: So, at any rate, um, I think, yeah, I, I think it's it's a very interesting time. It was an interesting time, and uh, I, I think we're moving, and we should be very careful as we go forward because we have to stop thinking America, America, as Americans, all, unless we're doing specifically government work. All of
0: the languages that I work in, everything is. All of the core function... Uh, names, including like CSS rules, are in English. Is yeah. Am I crazy to think that the whole world just has had to adapt to that?
1: You're not crazy to think that the whole world has had to adapt. No, you're absolutely sane to think that. The whole world has had to adapt. I think that leads to, to that English-centric. Yes, to that arrogance of the English-centric world. Um, and I, I suppose it's it is in part arrogance and it is in part just the default that Somehow emerged. And it's kind of problematic because English isn't an easy language. <laughs> it's one of the most difficult languages for people to learn as a second language. And so, I mean, I think the only harder one is uh, a variance of Chinese. So, when you give, give that, that uh, too much attention, it becomes very disconcerting because it does stray away from the world. It strays away from the goals of reaching every part of the world, which is, you know, part of the philosophy and ideology that goes into open web.
0: So at what point did you leave opera then?
1: Uh, so actually, it's very interesting. Uh, my time at opera was timed exactly from the day that Jan van Techner stepped back uh, and gave the CEO position to Lars Boylson at the time, and then I left the day before uh, it was announced publicly that Jan had left the, completely left the company and sold all his shares and just went home.
0: And this was coincidental?
1: Uh, I don't think so, to be I mean, honest. as
0: far as your timing goes.
1: Uh, it's very hard for me to answer that because, I, I mean, there were other complications there and they were already starting to dismantle the developer relations group. They had built a, an amazing DevRel team. They still have some people that are there that are, are some of the best and really great people in that dev relations team over the history of time. But at that point, they began to dismantle it because it, the, obviously the company was going in a very different direction and, and the desktop fight was, not, was no longer a pri- primary uh, goal and that's where I was working on the desktop and on the desktop issues and getting trying to break down those walls in the United States. So it was pretty, uh, pretty much right there at that point the next day. He announced, and that was it. So it was really – it wasn't anything that doesn't make sense in the course of the process. You know, It was time yeah. for me to go. It was time. The work was no longer uh, of interest uh, as it was the prior two years under, under Jan's leadership.
0: I like that you have so much to say, but you still give me a chance to talk. <laughs> this is fun. Um,
1: you, you know what, Brad? People will tell you that I just monologue, and I'm telling you it's not true.
0: <laughs> no, you're, you're quite good at this. Um, so, okay, so so you end at opera, and then what happens next?
1: <laughs> that sounds so funny. I ended opera. Yes, it was <laughs> no, <me.
0: laughs> No, you end at opera, not you yes, ended I- opera. <laughs>
1: There's a Freudian slip in that, too. Anyway, so all the silliness aside. Um, let's see. So after that, I um, I did some – I was continuing on as an invited expert at the W3C throughout all of this. I had been a member uh, during the years, and there's a differentiation there. The members uh, are companies and organizations that pay in. Okay. Uh, to. Uh, so ex- for when I was at opera, they're a member organization so i became from invited expert i became a member during the opera years and now i stepped back into invited expert and continued at w3c to work a little bit in the css uh working group and just keep my ear to the ground on what was going on and attending uh tpac the big t-pack and i also was going to a lot of conferences um that six months after uh leaving opera just to sort of you know you know how when you leave a company after a while you sort of if you're, if you have enough, uh, severance or what have you to go on and just take a couple of months and explore. That's what I did. And
0: I have no idea what that's like, but okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, it happened and I just <laughs> took advantage of it. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it wasn't exactly the best thing. You know, I was kind of lost there for a little while, but I was, you know, I was just getting out and seeing what was what. And I ended up going to work for Nobility, which is uh, spelled K-N-O-W. Ability, so, no, as in knowledgeability. And they're a wonderful nonprofit organization based in Austin, Texas. Uh, and I began to do work for them um, full time as uh, kind of a multi-hatted person uh, doing accessibility remediation and research and general outreach for the
0: organization. So you were the the organization had a website, and you were working on the accessibility of that
1: The organization promotes uh accessibility standards okay. and and education uh, it promotes uh, everything from the education of young people on up through uh, the facilitation of jobs for all all ages and all abilities. They are very proactive in the World of disabilities, uh, and human condition, and they, uh, advocate. So a lot of my job was going around and advocating, speaking, writing, uh, educating folks on web accessibility technologies like Way ARIA, which is, of course, the language that has come out of the W3C, the spec, and therefore, uh, de facto standard for, uh, managing interaction, uh, and how that plays out when you're building web apps.
0: So this is a broad ranging advocacy. I mean, basically, <laughs> it covers everything in the area of both disability and accessibility. Um, yes. And but you had it, a focus on And these are topics that you've kind of crusaded for your whole life.
1: Well, yeah, I'm, I have a disability. I've been very sick my whole life and, you know, got sicker. <laughs> and these things definitely uh, have, have influenced my own choices, obviously.
0: All right. Okay, uh, but so...
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. That was, there was definitely always a strong interest, and I think my name has often be related, been related to the accessibility uh, movement, if you will, on, uh, in, in web standards. However, uh, with all respect... To my wonderful colleagues, I have done very little, I think, in that <laughs> arena, where many other names have done a, a much greater amount of work. Uh, but yeah, for my interest is there. I do speak and, and I continue to write on accessibility subjects. And I'm also at Vivaldi in part because of that knowledge and experience.
0: So what happened in between Nobility and Vivaldi uh, was uh, you, got, uh, you got sicker, as you just said. Yep. Let's talk about that.
1: Well, yeah. So um, I, I guess to t- it's a little bit uncomfortable. It's an I don't. I wish I could find a way to be funny about things that happen to me. So like my life story, I could write a novel and it'd be really funny, so people would laugh the whole time. But I have had a really Difficult life, and I'm not sure how to make it funny.
0: (laughs) If if people go through and watch the uh, the videos that you put out during the worst of it, I think they will be able to laugh because you 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 maintained an amazing spirit through the whole thing. At least your public face was amazing.
1: I don't think so. I think it was. (laughs) I mean, I lost relationships, but let let me give let me give the question the answer that it's due. Basically, so I had been very ill since my early 20s, and Uh, It came on very suddenly. Nobody knew what was going on with me. I was having uh, central nervous system seizures. I was having all kinds of problems. And for years, I underwent all kinds of tests, and di- I went from diagnosis to diagnosis. And unfortunately, this is a, a, not an uncommon story for people who were born uh, in the baby boomer years, uh, especially those wh- who were exposed to different um, viral infections, and, like Hep C, and things of that nature. So we really have a changing face of, of medical science and, and health issues. And I just happened to be one of those lucky people who got caught. Up in what was a cascade of, ultimately uh, what might have been a environmental compare- and uh, genetic uh, pre- predisposition to uh, a disease. Ultimately, uh, in 2013, this is after how many years? Nearly 30 years of living with a with a non diagnosis or lists of not real diagnoses. Uh, I collapsed on my way back from open webcam, which was a, a wonderful event, ran for six years. This was the fifth year, I believe. Uh, and I was flying through Los Angeles. <laughs> I fell down, exhausted, whatever. I don't know. I just passed out. And the next thing I know, I'm in a hospital in Los Angeles and being told that I have like next to no blood, my red count's very low, my white count's really low, and my platelet's almost gone. So I went into complete bone marrow failure.
0: So what was the ultimate diagnosis?
1: Bone marrow failure disease, which is a, it just took all those years. And you know nobody really knows exactly how it cascaded. And again, that's why I say genetics, exposure to environmental or virological factors that we aren't aware of. Um, finally, the, the, the medical science, well, the disease just became so bad that suddenly it just showed exactly what it was that they couldn't tell is what's so disturbing because usually people will manifest that much younger. So when I actually got the illness, they didn't know it didn't present like a blood disease. So fundamentally, that's what it is. And so I'm very fortunate to also have had that happen at a time we're medical science caught up.
0: <laughs>
1: so, I, I guess we'll
0: call that fortunate. Yes.
1: Uh, yeah, though. I mean, if it's going to have to happen, you yeah. might as well be in the right place with the right resources and at the right time. And that I am so blessed and lucky for that because you no, know, I was at Nobility and they're not, they're a nonprofit, not a wealthy organization. They rely on donations, but they were able, You know I had, because I was an employee, I had some insurance, uh, coverage for at least the first six months of the of the disability. But you know how it is in the United States. You just don't get care beyond that, especially at a nonprofit with uh, who can't afford top-tier insurance, right? But they did their best. And then when, you know, things got really bad, they put up a trust and opened a crowdfunding uh, event and raised all of this money to help me uh, over close to, I think now, uh, there were two actual – crowd-sourced events, I think close to 200 grand was raised to help me uh, with living and medical expenses, and it got me the medications, which were very expensive, to combat the illness and the illness such that it is, uh, requires FDA, uh, there are some drugs out there that are FDA approved, but not for my condition, and I got on them, and it saved my life, and here I am to yammer on <laughs> All about it.
0: So but I think I it,
1: yeah, I think Go I ahead, first sorry.
0: donated to uh, to your crowdfunding campaign during the initial uproar over a proposed what became Obamacare. Uh, yes, back when everyone was when <laughs> certain oh, members God. of the political system were claiming that America had the number one health care system in the world, oh, and that yep. our insurance was already easily available. And that was rubbing me the wrong way. And then I, I was reading about your current situation and more, more than happy to donate. I think overall, the community really rallied behind you.
1: The community, I can barely speak about this because I get so emotional. Uh, it, it, who gets that? Right. Who gets that? I just I have no idea why people have been so kind to me because I don't think I'm anything special. And I'm pretty annoying, really, when it comes right down to it. So, you know, it's just amazing what what can happen if you ask. I didn't really ask for that. You know, um, it isn't a crowdfunding thing like just ask. It wasn't like that. It was really need driven and i think the timing you're very onto something because the timing was terrible in terms of where where people without insurance in the united states were i couldn't get the help i needed it was terrible because well, you i didn't,
0: basically lost your health insurance right yeah
1: more than once i have lost it in the in this journey i have lost it over four times and had to fight for it back and now finally it's stable and if obamacare changes in the future it it won't be so again it's it's a it's a very um unstable issue and and a very distressing one that it would happen at all and i think about people who didn't have the resources and didn't have the network that i have and i really get very upset because there's a lot of people out there without that and yeah. to me uh having having that window on the world if you will is yeah, it, it, it not only changed my life, it gave me my life.
0: Yeah. And and we're all better off for it, honestly. Well, that's um, really
1: sweet of you to say. <laughs> thank, thank you very much Brett. truly from the bottom of my heart for even I didn't even know you then and I was so out of it during my te- therapies and it was so horrible. I do, I just have to say I didn't know and I don't know and I want to take this moment, you know, in this podcast to say to all the people who did even in the, you know, just a slight thought of kindness, who were able to send that love, set you know support through money, whatever they did, I am really truly grateful to you all. Thank you.
0: That's a beautiful story, especially because it's, you're here now to talk about it. There were periods, yes. there were yeah. periods during that time where you would go very uh, silent, and and I would worry, like no yeah. updates, no no mentions, no nothing, and yeah, no, I'm yeah, very I, glad to be talking to you right now.
1: In December of 2014, I I was being prepared for hospice, and I nearly died. I mean, we're not talking like like you know ooh, near miss. It was being prepared for the end, and the something just kicked in. I I don't know what. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened, but my body switched it over. Whether it was the medicines, whether it was the love, <laughs> that was I don't know. But whatever happened, it kicked it over. And yes, yes, I'm really glad to be here to be able to talk with you and continue the, the adventure along the web. <laughs> it's just, I, and it's silly. People are like, you're going to go back to the web? I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> I, this is my thing. I, it's in my blood. <laughs> so just like a bone marrow disease, I have the web in my blood. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, that could be, become a weird comparison. But um but you did go back to the web. So this this December twenty fourteen was less than two years ago. That's right. And in that time when you started to feel better, you started reaching out. Uh, yes. looking for looking to get back into the web. What well, happened yeah. then?
1: So yeah, that's I guess I guess that's what had happened. I mean, I was still bedbound. Uh to be honest, I was still bedbound until probably December, November, December, November of this year, of last year. Um, And I was getting better. Uh, So I began to really talk to people. And I'm still really just, it's amazing how being away for almost three years, oh my God, it's like the entire industry has gone through some changes. Some of them are very disconcerting, if you ask me, like, There's a certain, I hate to bring it up, but, you know, kind of the negativity that we see in the Gamergate community has spread over to the web community. And I'm thinking, what the heck is this about? You know, this is the World Wide Web. Peace, love and understanding, people. (laughs) You know, where are your flowers and rainbows and unicorns. We're not going down this road. Please, let's not go down that road, you know.
0: There is a systemic reaction, a backlash right now. Yes. In every and, in every area against the It's peace driving and
1: love. me crazy. It's driving me crazy. It's like, oh, you're a social justice warrior. Like caring about humans is and justice and is a terribly wrong thing. Oh, it's so terrible to be for human civil rights and, and
0: justice. A terrible and, thing. And honestly, to be a woman in that position makes it at least at least ten times harder.
1: And I'm another. I'm not just female. I'm also what is known as another. I don't identify as white, and I do not identify with the vast majority of the culture around me. I grew up Jewish. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, I walk around every year of my life, and everybody's like, oh, happy Christmas. And I'm like, great, yeah, happy Christmas to you. Very happy Christmas to you. But (laughs) they're totally clueless about the fact that it means, or when I say, you know, it doesn't really have meaning to me, then you get the, oh, you poor thing. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I don't feel like I missed out on anything. I'm, I'm fine. We have our own customs and it works well. And, you know, everything's <laughs> <it's laughs> great. <laughs> so it's a, I think there is a lot of this positioning, just to bring that back around to a conversation at hand, is there is a lot of strange positioning uh, right now. And I think part of that is coming, unfortunately, from uh, the leadership around the world acting like a bunch of freaking idiots. It's it's truly a situation politically where the inmates are running the asylum. And so everybody now thinks it's okay to act like Donald Trump? I don't think so.
0: (laughs) I feel that's pretty much exactly how I feel about what's going on in the world right now. I feel like Donald Trump is an embodiment of this sentiment.
1: Yes, he really is, in my opinion.
0: Yes. I, I don't think he created it. I think he is the product. But we're not we're not here for a political it's a, discussion. No,
1: we're not. But it's interesting you should say that because I have a little family insight. My f- grandfather was friends with uh Trump's father. They both belonged to certain clubs in New York City. My my grandfather apparently I didn't I never knew him, unfortunately. He passed before I, I was born. But so this is my mother's father. Uh he uh had minor real estate dealings, but uh they were all buddies back then. And he <laughs> my mother tells a story. Of listening to her father complain to her mother when he would go out to the club and play cards, whatever they did, you know, the guys the guys did at the club. I have no idea, whatever they did, drinking, smoking, <laughs> playing cards probably, and gambling and, Guy uh, stuff. So yeah, it's a guy <laughs> thing. So she so he would come home and he would say, uh That Trump is doing such, he's making his mother cry every day. His father is so infuriated. They're going to have to send him away to military school. (laughs) I I listen to these stories from her and it's just hilarious. (laughs) So apparently he's been this way a very long time. I mean, he he was born, I think. And it it does not sound to me like his parents had the value system he has. He has. He seems to be quite an abnormality. (laughs) (laughs)
0: like i said we we won't go into it but
1: i just had to tell that anecdote because it's so funny it's like there
0: is a lot there yeah
1: yeah it's like my mom saying oh wow yeah i used to hear the stories about him (laughs) and put him in a military school because what that means you know in the united states is bad child you have to go to military school so you behave you know you learn some (laughs) discipline
0: Yeah, which is the exact opposite of what he's doing now.
1: It didn't work. That's, you know, discipline. That's part of it, okay? We're professionals. I, in my life, definitely lacked discipline before. Uh, You know, getting sick has kind of put me on a wake up and, you know, smell the coffee and do the job. You only have so much time as a professional in your job. Life goes by very, very quickly, and the things around us change ever more quickly, and I think that, you know, these aren't really sidebar conversations. They're the fundamental conversations because we have a responsibility to have some ethics, to have some professional conduct uh, codes and ideals. Don't you think, Brett?
0: I do. Absolutely. And I think that uh, we, we started to get com- complacent because it seemed like it was beginning to to turn in our direction. People were accepting the ideas of uh, uh, accessibility and the ideas of helping, you know, people who weren't part of the major, call it, ruling class of the web or anything. Yeah,
1: the, the, I think the web is all about representing the voiceless in many ways. It's giving a voice to the people who would not otherwise have one. You're but such
0: ho- a social justice warrior.
1: Oh, my God, I know. <laughs> <It's such> a-
0: <laughs> the SJW. Um,
1: I, so SJW. So, <laughs> so- straight
0: up. So then you, 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 you were in contact with the W3C and this is why you're first, first starting to feel like you were recovering.
1: Yeah. So of course, you know, the W3C was always, um, it's always the place where I go to see what's happening, specifications, what are the updates and the changes in CSS and HTML5, in uh, accessibility and internationalization, in the things that most, uh, the topics that most impact the web development and web browser world. And so, um, of course, that was always, uh, it's always a great place to go to find out what's new, in, in those channels. Also, there's a, as you probably are well aware, there's a split in the HTML specification. The what working group is taking, uh, has taken HTML5 and they've got working it on it separately via Git hub and uh, the W3C continues to work on a slightly different version and they try to work this out and it's not going all that well uh, how that all plays out in implementation though is really fascinating because I think both specs, you know, the HTML5 uh, renegade spec or it's actually the HTML spec, okay, so the living standard it's, it, is what the uh, it, what working group does whereas the HTML5 is now what W3C does. So anyway, long story less long. These were some of the places I went to start digging around and seeing what I had missed. And boy, have I found out that I have missed so much in 3 years. Just incredible from a practitioner standpoint. And I looked at that and I thought to myself, you know, I don't know that I'm willing or able at this point to learn 3 years worth of you know, advanced technology that that I'm and then come out of the gate as strong as I was. So I began to think of what I might be able to do with my skill set. It wouldn't place huge demands on me to learn new languages. And, uh, yeah, so that's where I figured that out through the process of just digging through documentation and looking at the politics and policies of the organizations that were in the standards uh in the standards groups, uh, and, and, and leading the web and its technologies.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and how did that go?
1: Uh, well, so, you know, at one point I I was, uh, kind of thinking, well, maybe, you know, it's time To think about maybe a a part-time work or taking on some freelance article writing, you know. So I was I was you know, like I said, I had a little time. Uh and then of course I got sick, so I really had to take the time. And you know, when you you can't do anything but stare at your belly button all day, you sure take stock of things. (laughs) (laughs) So I mean I wasn't always mentally capable of it. There's a huge I am missing most of that part of my life, to be honest with you. And people keep telling me, oh, go back and read all your posts. You just told me earlier at the top of uh, of our conversation here that uh, you know you thought it was pretty optimistic. I I don't think I was. I think I was a horror, and I don't want to even look back uh, now. I'm I'm keeping it for the day that I might want to. But if I never go back, that's okay. Forward makes sense. Yes. I, I
0: think that's perfectly reasonable.
1: It's also the reason um that people say, Why did you why are you trying to sell Molly dot com? Why are you not Molly.com anymore? And also it's that goes directly to the social justice issue. I am not a dot com. I do not identify, and I want it to be very clear that I no longer identify with the commercial uh, uh, predatory uh commercialization of, of the web and and the world. <laughs> to be honest. So that's you know that's my my per- my personal opinion and those are the reasons I dropped uh molly.com and that persona if you will. So that was a very interesting time of identification and re emergence like shedding off of the snake skin you know coming out raw and it is it's been wild because it is raw. I have found myself getting into arguments, or recently I was memed in a not very nice way, and I thought it was people tearing me down, and I could not understand why on earth they would be harassing me, you know, and then I realized it was not me, it was who I was associating myself with, and there was a huge backstory, and it was all of this drama and trauma stuff, and it made me feel really, really sad, you know, like, what, what happened to the the ethics, and the upstanding ideals that the web comes along with. So I realized that that was the voice I have, and that's the voice I have to continue to have because it's so desperately needed in this environment. So I thought, what could I do with that? And I thought, maybe if I go, you know, I'm going to throw some spaghetti against the wall and basically wrote to a number of organizations that I was available for part-time work uh, if if they were interested and the group that wrote back right away was w3c so that was back in let's say so I, I made the decision as of january 1st that that was my coming out uh day i was not i was no matter where my health was at january 1st i was going to be doing something productive and trying to earn my own money <laughs> and get out of debt and do you know do what i can as i am able and uh, so that's where I ended up. I went to the W3C uh, as of February, and I worked there for three months.
0: And was it a good three months?
1: Well, you know, this is a really hard thing to talk about also, because first of all, it's very personal and political. I guess that's uh, what
0: we're doing today is Uncomfortable yeah. Questions.
1: Yeah, maybe we, should, <laughs> we could call this the Uncomfortable Questions with Brett's show. <laughs> But, you know, I want to speak freely, and so I will. And I also want to preface it by saying this is really, truly no reflection of any employer or anybody out there. This is, these are my ideas, my opinions. I am speaking independently when I say these things. My experience there on the first day, and I wasn't even present on, on site. It was just online. The immediate people in my group were wonderful, lovely, lovely people. And almost 99.9% of the W3C is filled with lovely people and really, truly great minds. Unfortunately, there's a hole, in my opinion, again, in the, the leadership. Tim Berners-Lee is the director, he's, and he's a director, in my opinion, in name only, because he is, if you've read the papers, he's on to other things. He doesn't believe that the World Wide Web is currently what he dreamed of. And he has basically given up. And he and his friend, uh, Vint Cerf, <laughs> who really did uh, invent the Internet, and uh, some other folks from that uh, arena are working on new technology that they feel will be more appropriate to protect the privacy rights of individuals. They don't like what has happened to the HTTP and the TCIP stack, don't feel it's the appropriate technology, and now are on to a different thing. So in my opinion right there, there's a problem. When your director isn't even for the technology that he himself led, there, there's, a, there's a disconnect. And I didn't know that this was going on, Brett. I just felt on my first day something is really wrong. It's not like it was. Or I didn't know because I was in working groups where you actually work. (laughs) I was dealing with staff that was leaderless. And you know what happens in those environments? When you don't have any good leadership, nobody knows the terms of their jobs. I didn't know what the heck I was supposed to be doing. You know, and it changed day to day. And so I began to fight back and say, wait a second. You know, I have only so many hours. Uh, how about this? And every single time I'd make a suggestion, I swear to you, my, my immediate supervisor was loved. love things. She was very supportive or where she saw that things were not, not in step with what the W3C might want in the materials I was creating. Um, she would give me good guidance. She was great. But as soon as it would hit, uh, the next level, uh, all I would hear is nope, no, we can't do that. Nope. We can't do that. And instead, what my job became was trying to find people who had left the W3C and try to reel them back in as members. I felt really filthy during this. And it is my opinion at this point that the directorship of the W3C is putting the uh, focus on how to retain current membership and bring in new members when the fact of the matter is there are only a few working groups that are really vital and vibrant. And in my conversations with some of those companies, what I was told over and over again was we don't need the W3C. They are giving us nothing of value at this point. We know the technologies we can run with what we have. So I think that, from a leadership standpoint, the person who's supposed to be making decisions isn't making decisions, and that would be the CEO.
0: It sounds like duct tape and band aids at this point. Like there was
1: always it was always (laughs) that. So that I
0: suppose that can be interpreted two ways. One can be a, a strappy MacGyver esque kind of like we're building something new, and then it can be we're just trying to maintain.
1: No, the building something new isn't at the W3C. This is the point I'm making. All of that information that's going on, uh, all of that stuff that Tim Berners-Lee is interested in, is separate from the World Wide Web as we know it today. This is, you know, it's not talked about enough. And people are going to hate me. There are going to be some haters on this because I'm speaking up. And we love the W three C. I love the W three C. I love the people, and I think that it's not living up to its truth. And I have to call. I have to call foul. I have to.
0: This is eerily close to the way I feel about uh, the United States government right now.
1: It's the same thing. <laughs> it, no, no. I have to tell you, it's really the same thing. It's a. It's an attitude of combative. There, the, the, the conversations in those three months were. Oh, uh, we have to uh, recognize that it is a combative uh, nature, and we need to all be okay with that. Excuse me, no, we do not have to be combative. <laughs> and then, of course, I get combative. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> that gets yeah. saying saying let's be combative is uh, that makes me very combative. I do not <laughs> like. That. So uh, I got combative and said, no. I said, you know, let's be kind to each other. Everybody there is in a state of depression, especially if they've been there a long time. This is not uncommon in any organization and in any institution that is both underfunded and ha- lacks leadership. So it, it really isn't a failure of the W3C. It's a failure of infrastructure and systems. And I think that, that where they could turn it around is by first acknowledging that that's the problem.
0: That was going to be my next question is, what? where is the, uh, the turning point for this? At what point do you so, think we can yeah. repair it?
1: Well, so there's a person there at the W3C, wonderful woman Marie Claire Forge, and she's doing um, the one really interesting thing I saw when I was at the W3C that seemed very proactive and very uh, potentially uh, uh, another, uh, stream of revenue for them would be, uh, trainings. She's creating with companies like Microsoft and other large name companies, uh, the online trainings for absolutely free. And that's pretty incredible. And they have over a quarter million students, I believe. I'm, I hope I'm not misquoting that. Uh, you know, that might be good for people to just do a double check on, uh, on my, uh, uh, on my number there, but I believe there's over a quarter of a million students that are registered in some of those online uh, courses. There's one in HTML5, and then there's one coming up, uh, I believe in accessibility, and they're gonna continue to grow these out, and there is a lot of potential in that. And these are the types of things I really would like to see the W3C taking up the priority list. But there seems to be a, a very, unwillingness to change the pay to play model uh, of if you're we you know we're relying on the large company dues that from membership and that's a lot of money and a lot of companies just don't want to do it anymore
0: this is so reminiscent of the political system right now it's
1: (laughs) kind of you know really they scary. do. S- I, well, you know we do. We are reflections of each other. We are reflections of our of our world, and vice versa. You what, know what's what out there. Is, is it is,
0: though? Is it disruption? Like what needs to happen?
1: Yes, it is disruption, and unfortunately, both for the for the state of the web and the state of the world. Uh, I think they're reflecting each other right now, and. That makes a lot of sense to me, and I think we could. What we can do is we can all take a look at what we are individually doing uh, to improve or change those conditions that make us extremely uncomfortable. For me, I'm extremely uncomfortable, so I want to make a change in conditions. And one of those was walking away from the W3C. For me, okay, it, it, it's a wonderful experience, and I never want to say that people shouldn't go go there. <laughs> go there. You know, in fact, go there on masse. Help them; they need it. Um, I'm not, I'm not capable of doing it because I'm not in a place where I want to repair something. I have just gone through repairing my life and my body to a point where I can get out of bed. I can't repair a broken organization. Yeah. So it's up for, it's up to somebody else to do cuz I want to fly right now. I want to have fun. And the world doesn't seem like it's geared for that. So of course I'm on a game changing mission. And I'm really happy to say that it you know I ended up in a in a company now that is also on a game changing mission.
0: So let's and, talk about that.
1: Yeah. So of course, you know, I had, I had been part of the, as, as we talked earlier, part of the opera environment and, uh, got to know many of the folks there, uh, and Jan von Techner as the C- former CEO there, uh, we had a good relationship and we had built on that relationship, uh, over time. And, you know, he, uh, of course went on a couple of years ago now, uh, to create Vivaldi Technologies co-founded and Vivaldi is making a web browser for, as we say, for our friends, okay? And basically what that means is everybody and especially power users. So we are in our 1.0 versions. Uh, we, are, we just released uh, recently uh, our, our solid. We came out of beta, basically. Uh, and it's a very exciting uh, browser, vivaldi.com. Uh, If you want to check it out, uh, you're going to see some interesting things on the UI. The interface is very, very extensible, and it's going to get even more so. And we are building it also to, uh, we use the Chromium open source engine, which uh, we are uh, implementing and working on as well. So, So pretty cool.
0: The tagline, a browser for our friends. Who are the friends?
1: So the friends, uh, the way we see that is that everybody who uses the web uses the web differently. So uh, the the, the Valdi friend, the first type of persona that might be is a person who's used who spends a lot of time in their web browser. Okay, they're a, a power user. They're in that browser more than two hours a day. Okay, so they might want to have extremely customized interface. For example, and have the skills to do that, by the way, you know, be able to go in and know, Hey, it's file preferences. Go to these preferences and change the heck out of it. Or you can build your own style sheet and build your own technology and extend the browser to make it work the way you want to. I mean, it's pretty cool. So, you know, um, that extensibility, I think is really where the power user comes in. But of course, out of the box, it, it's friendly and to everybody. So everybody is our friend, but especially the power user who wants to, who wants a better browsing environment and ultimately is working in a browser environment for the greater part of their hours of, of day.
0: I, I would say in this kind of field where you're providing a, an app for free, that extensibility has been what has made some of the major. Some of the things we accept as default now—it's what made it work. Opening it up to power users, but making it accessible to everyday users.
1: Yes, and that's definitely the. There's a duality there. So when we say for our friends, we mean both. We mean those people, especially the targeted people who are in that browser a lot, and anybody, because we'll be friends with anybody if you're friends with us. Then why not? You know, because that's that's part of the cool stuff. It goes back to what I'm talking about social justice and the conscience of the web. Vivaldi has a conscience and Vivaldi has a very, very optimistic and positive attitude about people and the world at large. And it's a much happier place. And I think, you know, that's part of the reason I was so drawn to the browser and to that environment and, you know, was able to actually uh, you know, come out with a, with an actual job, I think I was really lucky because I really need to be in such a nurturing environment. And it really is that. So when we talk about open web, Brett, those are, you know, we can talk to technology all day long, but what about the parts of that are about the human beings? Because we have to remember that was always part of the ideology was to improve humankind and its ability to better communicate with each other. And what that means to the economy, to the political world at large, to environmental issues, to name your business, to name your issue, to name your disability, to name whatever it is that people are trying to get information or empowerment regarding that the web is a place to go get that and be empowered and also find community and human beings that you can also relate with. And so that to me is the essence. And so I'm going to be spending a lot more time on the human side.
0: So one of the things that is intriguing about the Vivaldi browser is that it's built with the same technologies that build the web. Correct. And uh, I know.
1: It's cool. (laughs) It's so cool.
0: (laughs) So, I mean, basically it's, you can design the interface using HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And that yeah, is-
1: essentially, that's all you need to pretty much go crazy. And obviously, it's, it's early days yet. We have a lot more features coming, and we have bugs that we're stomping. And of course, people are very uh, enthusiastic. And in some cases, people are really pushing us hard for certain features. And while that is absolutely great, because the power user is, after all, the group we are working with, uh, there is, it's a very small team and we have to, we're, we're growing the technology as we grow the business. So the browser, which is based on web technologies is of essence, open web. Um, the, the company is of essence, open web ideology, ideologically. Okay. And so that is really, I think what is going to give us and what already gives us a huge advantage, uh, and we will be able to see some great things happen because developers and UX engineers and people who design stuff are going to have a really good time with this browser.
0: So, and, and this is not a criticism from me, but let's note that the Vivaldi browser is not open source at its core. Is well, there a, was there a, a reason behind that decision?
1: Yeah, actually, everything has a reason behind it. Let me address that. Um, technically speaking, I think the best way to consider us is as a hybrid. We are open web technologies. So, in other words, to extend and to use the browser, um, you can. All you're going to need over time is just those three skills: set, the skills of HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Okay, and we use we use React. So. Um, it 's important to, to you know just have that in your head, but it, no big deal because pretty common and easy for people to, who are in web development or user interface engineering, they have access to, to those folks who, who are very, very strong on, on those uh, skill sets. So with that combined skill set, this is now open web. so open web is different than open standards. okay so we have an open web on the one hand. The core engine, our rendering engine is based on Chromium. Okay. That is an open source project. So everything we do that we take from Chromium, there's an agreement in open source world that, you know, with open certain open source licenses demand that if you're, if you're taking that code, you have to upstream code back. You have to work on bugs. You have to share your stuff. So in one way or another, we either upstream or contribute wherever we can to the open source community and the Chromium project. So I would say the real place where we are not open source is like a little tiny triangle where the business hat goes. And that is due to my, to my thought, is due to the fact that there's history with, uh, with the upheaval that, uh, that, that going fully open or opening up to external forces can set an agenda off its course. Does yep. that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Well, and so to be fair, a, yeah. n- none of the major browsers. I mean, they all use you know either Chromium or WebKit, and none which of them
1: that... are which are related. You know, so right. it's really all well, WebKit. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, but but not. You know, you know, but not. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, yeah. It, this is so. What were you going to say? I'm sorry.
0: Well no it's uh, i think I think honestly open source can defeat itself quite often, and there are a lot of open source projects that started off with one set of goals and just kind of um diluted over time
1: yeah and too I much think, input yes, and that's uh, I think that's where the triangle uh, of control or ownership let's say uh that Vivaldi wants to maintain has to do with the fact that Don't want to get derailed from, from the core purpose. And I think that because we've open, we are contributing open source and we are open web and pretty much. On the technical level, everything is wide open and we are very, uh, you know, if you write to us, we talk back to you. We're going and to, and we're just a few people. So we're, you know, we're doing our best to keep that open. And, keep, and of course, I'm developer relations. So I have a lot of work ahead of me with that to really clarify that message that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be answering that question probably from now until the end of my career is why aren't you open source? Unless eventually that does happen. It's not out of the question. Uh, I mean, anything is possible. But for right now, I understand the business decision.
0: Well, and let's be honest, this isn't a startup run by a bunch of kids. It's people who, who thank have, you who have watched, <laughs> who have watched this kind of project in the past and and seen... have
1: lost, have lost, have seen their vision get lost yes. by other other interferences. Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I wow. would say
1: that's the heart. That's the heart of the matter right there.
0: I think that I think that developer relations is going to be extremely important in overall in, in getting uh, acceptance of a new platform. Uh, like I said before, I think so too. having having people able to extend and willing to be part of a community is what will make yeah. or break it.
1: Oh, I absolutely agree. And um, I think because it's a different you know, what's really fascinating to me, Brett, is no longer is it the early days for a person like me who came in at, at the beginning, you know, when we were in earlier days, we were fighting for standards and we, there was, the the messed up part of that was there was competition between the browsers on that layer. And that should never happen. That's like, that's like saying, okay, I'm going to manufacture this car without any brakes because I don't have to put in breaks because there's no standard, right? Ridiculous. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's a non-starter. So it, that didn't work. We are now, uh, a lot of people are like, well, everybody's using Chromium. Chromium code is so bloated. It should be, and that may that may well be true. <laughs> uh, the bottom line is at least it is as compatible as it can possibly be in step with current uh, specifications out of the W3C. So we get that implementation across the browser world for anybody using a common browser a browser engine like that, or for those who are not like Microsoft and you know other players um, they are working very hard to ensure that standards are not the, the, the platform that they are competing on they are competing on features now speed you know, the, uh, how much battery usage goes on, all of those issues. Which P- is what differentiates, yes.
0: differentiates it from the uh, Netscape, i.e. wars of the uh, early Exactly.
1: Web. That is the crux of the issue. We are now in a different <laughs> day. We are in a different, uh, pl- we're playing a different game now.
0: We're not repeating and the I think same mistakes.
1: No. And of course, we're going to, we're making all kinds of new ones. <laughs> but, you know, that's part of the learning experience. And part of the reason I think people do these things, because we want to learn, we want to be better ourselves and we want to best ourselves. You know, we, we did this once before. Let's see if we can do it better now. I get that.
0: So anyone who hasn't seen it should check out Vivaldi.com. And, uh, there's a quick list of some of the features that already set Vivaldi apart and it's looking very cool. What would you say? Oh, go ahead.
1: Uh, No, no, no. Uh, You have a question by all means.
0: I was going to say as our, our kind of final question today, what are your current goals uh, inside and outside of Ovaldi?
1: Well, of course on the personal, um, I'm working hard to really keep the health management. Uh, I, and that isn't an easy thing because most of it is uh, at this point, most of it is nutrition, rest, and, uh, and stress management. (laughs) And I'm serious about this people, you know, so enthusiastic and I love my job and I want to do it 24 seven. And then I see myself doing that. And then I realize this isn't good. I'm killing myself again. So it's always, uh, right now it's really about learning how to find the balance, uh, that is best for my needs. And I think everybody really needs to take a look at that. And they need to do it iteratively because those needs change in our lives. I'm not 30 years old. I'm 53 and <laughs> it makes a difference. You know, the recuperative power isn't there as much. So I'm really working on changing my behaviors. You know, I cut out, you know, everything bad just about, you know, everybody has to have a little something. But <laughs> <laughs> drinking... <Agreed. laughs> <laughs> no drinking. Food, food is my. I love food, but you know, whatever. So no drinking. There no, are worse you, things. There, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, at any rate, I'm pretty mild in my uh, in my vices, <laughs> and I've really settled settled down a lot. I was quite the wild child and colorfully known for it. <laughs> um, but I think that's a big part of the personal goal is just to really live a healthier life and and be. Be in the in the moment as much as possible because you don't get that. I, I learned that that's you know we don't pay, we don't realize that how fast it goes. And when you say something really mean, if that something happened to that person and you love them, you're going to really remember that and it's going to hurt <laughs> and it's going to hurt like hell. So I'm learning to be a better person. and I'm trying really hard to be kinder and I'm trying really hard to listen when other people talk, because I have a tendency to, to be hyperverbal, and it's not, it's not by desire. It, it definitely is something that's a brain issue for me. I can't stop talking. Uh, my brother also has uh, pressured speech and hyper, hyperverbal uh, tendencies. So working with those things is, and adapting better is really part of the personal goal. On the professional layer, Uh, taking that message forward and taking that message forward. Good health. Uh, you know, caring about the moment, caring about the people around you, caring about the product you're making, you know, putting a quality back into our job, putting professional back into the web industry and creating a set via, um, you know, I'm, I'm reinvigorating with friends the web standards project. And uh, it's like a refresh version, and this time the primary goal is to really write a specification for our profession: what it means to be a web professional, and what that will, you know, fall into uh, in terms of how we uh, create some codes of conduct and what quality means. If and I can, so there, those that's pretty much where it's at.
0: Yeah, if I can tie this together with an observation. I would say that your drive has always clearly been to change things for the better. And I think that your drive to get healthier is probably directly related to making sure you have the ability to continue doing that.
1: I hope so. That's a very (laughs) sweet thing to say. It's harder for me to recognize. You know how it is. It's really hard to recognize some of your own... I recognize my flaws. I have, you know, enough self hatred to fill a small country. But, um, you know, uh, once in a while, I'll have a good thought about myself. <laughs> that, that's usually what it is. It's at least I'm, I, I really do care about people and I really care about the world. And I really, really care so much that I want to make the rest of my life about helping to make a better place, safer place. Healthier people, happier world.
0: Oddly enough, and coincidentally, I'm. While we were waiting to start this conversation, I made a quick meme on Pablo from Buffer, where you just take an image mm-hmm. and throw some text on it. And uh, today's it's cool. was
1: I love Pablo.
0: Yeah, so today's was uh, friendliness spreads faster than uh, Zika, and it's way better for your kids.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, there you go. I- <laughs> <laughs> friendliness spreads faster than zika <laughs> very apt I yeah think, kinda, for, it, it for seems oddly appropriate now yes it really does All well right. this has been great brett uh this do you has. have anything for me or
0: uh is there now that com is uh deprecated where where is your <laughs> uh primary contact point
1: uh i'm i'm uh speaking of hyper i'm doing a little bit of blogging, not much, but so far, just a couple of posts about the web standards project refresh. that's at hyperverbal.org. So that's my new, uh, personal website without any, uh, content yet, except that I just launched a couple of weeks ago and it's nothing fancy, just something for me to have a point of contact with everybody. So it would be, uh, Hyperverbal, so hyperverbal, one word, dot org.
0: And, uh, and as far as social media, have things changed there?
1: Uh, at, mo- uh, at molly.com is changed to M. Holtschlag, so my first uh, initial and my last name, but it's still the same account. So if you were following me, molly.com, you were still following me. If not, you need to look for me under uh, my last name, and that you can find on Wikipedia or just try to spell it,
0: <laughs> or, or check the show write. note uh, links. Yeah, it'll be like, there.
1: There you go. If you spell it right, Brett. Right. <laughs> Have kidding. I ever messed it up? <laughs> no, you're good about that, but <laughs> I mess it up. Come on, look at that name. <laughs> I've, had is, uh... it, I've had it my whole life, and I can't write it right. <laughs>
0: Anything with a Z uh, to the uh, U.S. vocabulary gets confusing. I have friends. I I had a friend named Shabilsky. Have you ever seen that one spelled?
1: (laughs) I think I have. P R
0: Z Y B L I S K I. I think. Yeah, that one's. I I don't think. Well, if
1: you think if you think the Eastern European and Baltic names are weird, (laughs) I, I work for a company that's Norwegian and Icelandic. The Icelandic language is oh my goodness, if you've never seen it or in, it's just incredible. We should have a conversation
0: about Welsh sometime.
1: Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> that's another that's another one. I, I think I think Icelandic might be easier.
0: Yeah, if you think Mandarin is hard, try figuring Welsh out sometime.
1: Uh, and the problem with Welsh is like it has it, it looks like English, but it's exactly. unpronounceable.
0: All letters we recognize, but not in the right yes, order. <laughs>
1: No, (laughs) very funny. So true. But that, you know, that goes to the world and the wide, and and how, you know, we, we are very colorful and different. And we've got people in Wales, and we've got people in Iceland, and we've got people in Africa. And, you know, this is a very wide world. And I love that. I love the web. I'm not giving up on it because of that. I believe there's a heart beating, and that heart beats loud, loudly
0: a very wide world may end up being a better uh, title for the episode than uncomfortable questions.
1: Oh, I think it's so much more more optimistic. (laughs) Yes. It definitely fits the plan.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me again, Molly.
1: It's a pleasure, Brett. And I'm so glad to, you know, chat with you and hear your voice and that you're doing well. Always a pleasure.
0: Yes. I'm ecstatic to hear you. uh, So upbeat and, and lively.
1: I'm I'm getting the right nutrients. (laughs) So here's to getting the right nutrients for all of us. Cheers. All
0: right, right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, This was episode 166 with Molly Holschlag, and, and we'll be back in a couple weeks.